Old powers waken, shadows stir, an age of wonder and terror will soon be upon us, an age for gods and heroes. The glass candles are burning, and you're listening to the Obsidian Knights Podcast. Hello, my sweet summer children. Welcome back to another episode of the Obsidian Nights podcast, where we go through A Song of Ice and Fire, chapter by chapter, starting with the first book in the series, A Game of Thrones. And today I am covering a really, really juicy chapter, and that is Eddard 10. And today's special guest is Lucifer (laughs) Means Lightbringer, LML. What's good? Let the people know who you are and where they can find you. Hey, Gray. Thanks so much for having me on. I am thrilled. We've talked about doing this since you've been doing the Obsidian Nights, so I'm super glad to be here. All my stuff is just Lucifer Means Lightbringer, YouTube channel, .com, SoundCloud, if you, for my background, like, spacey terror tracks that I have. It's all Lucifer Means Lightbringer. That's how to find me. And uh, I'm on Twitter, at the Dragon LML, if you want uh, left-wing politics. So before we get into it... What is your overall take on this chapter? Like, what is your favorite part of the chapter? The dream? Well, it's, you know, I'm obviously known for symbolism and stuff. So I guess I've got like two answers. There's like the plot answer and the symbolism answer. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, after I figure we'll probably talk about the basics of what's going on here. But at some point, we'll talk about how this fight is actually an echo of the last hero fighting against the others, uh, which is a major sort of symbolic foreshadowing, uh, you know, with Ned as the last hero. So there's, it's a, it adds even more epic sort of context to an already like super epic scene. Um, but I just, I, it's also important to remember that Ned goes into this dream after fighting Jamie uh, and being given milk of the poppy by mm-hmm. Picel. So there's even, uh, it's a little bit parallel to you know the idea of a green seer taking weirwood paste and dreaming because Ned's getting milk of the poppy, which is kind of a symbolic stand-in for weirwood paste, and then he goes and dreams of this fight, which is like the last hero's fight. So yeah, it's pretty cool that's, stuff. But that's an interesting take, and it's also interesting that you know Jory dies, and in the dream, Jory's father mm-hmm. dies. So there's mm-hmm. like a lot that could trigger a dream like this. So let's get into it. He dreamt an old dream of three knights in white cloaks and a tower long fallen and Liana in her bed of blood. In the dream, his friends rode with him as they had in life. Proud Martin Cassell, Jory's father, faithful Theo Wool, Ethan Glover, who had been Brandon Squire, Sir Mark Risewell, soft of speech and gentle of heart, the Cranningman, Hallen Reed, Lord Dustin on his great red stallion. Ned had known their faces as well as he knew his own once, but the years leech at a man's memories, even those he had vowed never to forget. In the dreams, they were only shadows, gray wraiths on horses made of mist. They were seven facing three in the dream as it had been in life. Yet these were no ordinary three. They waited before the round tower, the red mountains of Dorne at their backs, their white cloaks blowing in the wind, and these were no shadows. Their faces burned clear, even now. Sir Arthur Dane, the sword of the morning, had a sad smile on his lips. The hilt of the great sword Dawn poked up over his right shoulder. Sir Oswell Went was on one knee, sharpening his blade with a whetstone. Across his white enameled helm, the black bat of his house spread its wings. Between them stood fierce old Sir Gerald Hightower, the White Bull, Lord Commander of the King's Guard. I looked for you on the trident, Ned said to them. We were not there, Sir Gerald answered. Woe to the usurper if we had been, said Sir Oswell. When King's Landing fell, Sir Jamie slew your king with a golden sword, and I wondered where you were. Far away, Sir Gerald said, or Ares would yet sit on the Iron Throne, and our false brother would burn in seven hells. 
I came down on Storm's End to lift the siege, Ned told them. And the Lords Tyrell and Redwine dipped their banners, and all their knights bent the knee to pledge us fealty. I was certain you would be among them. Our knees do not bend easily, said Sir Arthur Dane. Sir Willem Darius fled to Dragonstone with your queen and Prince Viserys. I thought you might have sailed with them. Sir Willem is a good man and true, said Sir Oswell. But not of the King's Guard, Sir Gerald pointed out. The King's Guard does not flee. Then or now, said Sir Arthur. He donned his helm. We swore a vow, explained old Sir Gerald. Ned's wraiths moved up beside him with shadow swords in hand. They were seven against three. And now it begins, said Sir Arthur Dane, the sword of the morning. He unsheathed dawn and held it with both hands. The blade was pale as milk glass, alive with light. No, Ned said with sadness in his voice. Now it ends. As they came together in a rush of steel and shadow, he could hear Lyanna screaming. Eddard! She called. A storm of rose petals blew across the blood-streaked sky as blue as the eyes of death. Lord Eddard! Lyanna called again. I promise, he whispered. Lya, I promise. Lord Eddard! A man echoed from the dark. Groaning, Eddard Stark opened his eyes. Moonlight streamed through the tall windows of the Tower of the Hand. Lord Eddard? A shadow stood over the bed. How long? So, he's waking up. Six days and seven nights he was sleeping. So, let's talk about this dream first. Before we go any further, because it's a lot to unpack. On reread first read this dream it reminded me so much of jamie lannister's weirwood dream uh, where he's visited by the king's guard and they're on totally horses and all of that and i wondered like what kind of symbolism that could be or what kind of meaning that was was it foreshadowing or is that just how dreams look in the world of george R. R. martin And I really couldn't find any connection besides it being the King's Guard that appeared to Ned and the King's Guard that appeared to Jamie. Do they go together? Possibly. Maybe. I would say that they do, um, at least in certain senses. So, you know, I I always think that uh, George is kind of doing double duty with everything. So, for example, all the symbols in Jamie's dream or in Ned's dream here are important to Ned and Jamie's story. The Blue Roses, you know, are talking about Leanna. The fact that the Kingsguard are wraiths, that's because Ned's, you know, sort of forgotten their faces. It's meant to communicate loss and things like that. Um, but there's the, the double duty comes in the fact that, again, that's, that's another last hero versus the other scene, Jamie's dream and uh, the Weirwood Stump dream. And the way that you kind of get that clue is because him and Brienne are both wielding flaming swords, right? So mm-hmm. this is anytime you're wielding flaming swords against an enemy that's in snowy armor yeah, with I, mist trailing mm-hmm. away. And and so that's basically where it starts as far as the symbolism goes. I've got a whole video about the others in the Kingsguard and how they're very detailed symbolic parallels. But basically, you know, the others are called white shadows and pale shadows. They have armor made of ice. They have flesh the color of milk and snow, and their, so- and their swords glow ghostly in the moonlight. And all of those descriptions get applied to the Kingsguard, and you, you kind of don't notice because there's so much going on in the Kingsguard scenes, and you're not thinking about them as the others. Mm-hmm. But if you isolate them, their armor is snow white, their cloaks are like snow, they have icy, you know, their armor is as hard as ice, they're mm-hmm. ghostly in the moonlight, they're even called the white swords, the Kingsguard. And right. then, of course, the others wield the crystal ice swords that look white. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a very strong parallel. And it's nowhere more clear as in the Jamie dream, you know, because uh, they're literally ghosts and they're all snowy. And then they're being met by a heroic Jamie and Brienne and they've got flaming swords. So it's pretty easy to see how that could be a parallel of the last hero versus the others, right? Yeah, it's really clear when you say it like that. Another parallel that I was thinking of is that they, the Kingsguard appears to Ned the way they do, and the Kingsguard appears to Jamie the way they do, because they both 
have done some dishonorable shit. Like mm-hmm. the idea is, well, the, there's a theory that Ned Stark or that Ned Stark didn't really defeat Sir Arthur Dane the way that he says he defeated Sir Arthur Dane. Now, this isn't canon, but we don't know. And Ned has spent a lot of time judging Jamie for killing Ares. Mm-hmm. And Ned basically just dishonorably killed the Kingsguard members for defending the king, his nephew, Jon Snow. I think he definitely feels conflicted about it. Um, and if you're talking about the Howland Reed part, then the, so there's, there's a good parallel here with the last hero stuff. Okay. So on the TV show, we have to sort of separate the TV and what we know in the books because the TV show fleshed out a little more of the scenario. And what they gave us was essentially Howland Reed getting injured, sort of being out of the fight. And then right when Ned's about to get killed by Arthur Dane, he basically just comes up, sneaks up behind Arthur Dane and stabs him in the throat with a knife. And that's mm-hmm. kind of dishonorable as far as like, you know, it's not, you're not facing your opponent, blah, 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 blah. Arthur Dane's a great warrior and you stabbed him in the back. That's not, you know, nobody would be proud of that. Um, right. I suspect that something similar happened in the books. I'm a fan of the blow dart theory <laughs> because Howland Reed is from the Cranogs and mm-hmm. they have poison darts and stuff like there. Or it could have been a little bit of magic. But remember, let's talk about The Last Hero for like two seconds here. The Last Hero story is given to us in a couple places. We get the first half of it with Old Nan and Bran. And we only get to the point where The Last Hero is by himself and his, his 12 companions die. It gets so cold that his sword breaks and the others are hot on his tail. And then the story gets interrupted. And later they're talking about Benjen. And Bran blurts out, ah, the children will help Benjen just like they helped the last hero. And then elsewhere, we hear in the Night's Watch annals that the children of the forest helped the first men of the Night's Watch, quote, band together to defeat the others. Mm-hmm. We also know that the first men swear their Night's Watch owes to weirwood trees. And the mm-hmm. first Night's Watchmen would have been first men. So all of that puts the children of the forest as like the helping role of the last hero. And then so you have Ned, who's the last hero in this scene, and who's helping him defeat the Kingsguard, but Howland Reed. So you you suspect that the... Go ahead. So who is Children of the Forest descent? Exactly. The the, the Cranog men are a good symbolic stand-in for the Children of the Forest because they intermarried with them, and Jojen even has the green gifts. Howland Mm -hmm. Reed supposedly went to the Isle of Faces and talked to the, the green men. So he's definitely works well as a child of the forest stand-in. And he's the one that assisted the last hero figure, Ned, to win this battle. And that makes you think that maybe there was magic involved because the children of the forest almost undoubtedly would have helped the last hero with magic. Mm-hmm. You know, weapons or magic or some combination of that. So what do you think, what do you think of that parallel? I mean, I think that's interesting. Um, I just wonder, was George foreshad like George is said to be like this gardener. So if he planted those seeds this early on, do you think this set up like a setup for John? Because John, John has so many parallels with Ned. Yes. hundred percent. hundred percent. So it's a setup for like John Azor high. Yes, exactly. So John would be in the Ned role. Uh, and if you imagine again, the King's guard with their snowy white armor, uh, you know, they're def- and they're defending Leanna, who has parallels to Knight's Queen. If you want to talk about Leanna, we can talk about her symbolism. But it sort of snaps the whole picture into place. Well, go um, for it. <laughs> okay, so okay, so first of all, the the standout line here that gets you thinking about the others in this Tower of Joy scene is the one where it says the blue eyes of death in the sky, the blue rose petals. Let me get that line right here. It says, um, a storm of rose petals blew across a blood-streaked sky as blue as the eyes of death. Now, mm. the eyes of death that yeah, are that's blue, <laughs> that's obviously the other. Oh, it's a beautifully poetic line. It, it, even Check this out, Gray. A storm of rose petals blew across a sky. It's B-L-E-W blue, but the rose petals are blue. 
So mm-hmm. you could even read it as a storm of rose petals blue, like rose petals red, rose petals blue, which is right. very like, I don't know, it's very, very lyrical. But symbolism wise, the blue eyes of death, it's obviously the, you think of the others, their eyes are blue, they are the messengers of the instruments of death. And it's a storm of, of these blue rose petals that look like eyes across the sky. And now the other's eyes look like blue stars. So if mm-hmm. you put the blue eyes of death in the sky, now you have essentially stars in the sky, the eyes of the others, they're up in the sky like they're watching this scene. Mm-hmm. And that makes a ton of sense if John's the prince that was promised, either if he's promised, you know, as, as in he's Azor Hyberborn, he's supposed to defeat the others, or if, as I've speculated, he's actually the prince that was promised to the others, the fulfillment of an ancient pact between the others and the Starks, you know, that was the origin of all this evil or whatever. Well, He's got to become, go ahead. I was going to say it makes sense either way. Either way, exactly. That they either would be way. watching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that's what triggered the others to move, to start like wrestling. And it was John's birth because they're here watching, I think. One of the things I wanted to talk about was Dawn. We get like our first real description of dawn the blade was pale as milk glass alive with light and that made me think of jamie's weirwood dream and their Mm -hmm. swords actually being on fire or alive with light and cersei telling him the you die when the light does or something like that Mm -hmm, or the flame mm -hmm. and Mm. i was thinking like so is dawn like, how is Dawn as pale as milk glass? Is it like Valyrian steel that has been reworked or something? Because, I mean, the only other colored variation of Valyrian steel was a dyed Valyrian steel when Tobo Mott reworked mm-hmm. ice. Yeah, and possibly like red rain sounds like it yeah, might be red dyed rain. red too. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, so I'm wondering like what's going go on ahead, with yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Well, um, we are told in the world of ice and fire that Dawn is identical in all respects to Valerian steel, save for the color. So it's unbreakable, unnaturally light, sharp. Um, It's basically like white Valerian steel. Now, what's interesting is that uh, it's said to have been in possession of House Dane since like the age of heroes. Mm -hmm. And Dane is supposed to be a first man house, even though they have occasional like Valerian or Targaryen looking looks, you mm-hmm. know, with Dark Star and uh purple Ashara eyes Dane. of Ashara and even uh young uh young Ned, young mm-hmm. Edric Stark has hair that's really pale, straw colored that's almost like silvery and um in any case, uh Great Empire of the Dawn is is the likely answer. Um you know some of you got some of your listeners know about the Great Empire of the Dawn theory and we don't need to go into it, but basically you know, we've been hearing about dragons coming from a shy since the first book. It's in the world of ice and fire that suggests that the Valerians first learn how to tame dragons from a shy. So there's all this mystery around a shy. And basically there's a whole theory that, well, there used to be an actual, the first dragon Lord race that existed before the long night was in a shy. They're also known as the great empire of the dawn. There's a lot of clues about it. At Old Town, there's that few stone fortress under the high tower. With mm-hmm. Again, the high tower is an age of heroes thing. So if the fortress is under it, then that means few stone, which is, again, only built by dragon lords, was in Old Town, in the age of heroes. So the whole thing basically can, is the point of the entire theory is to say that people from Ashai came to Westeros before the long night or during the long night. And of course they did because... What the hell does Azor High and all that Lightbringer shit have to do with the others and the Long Night if, like, Azor High or somebody like him didn't come to Westeros? Right. And then we're told the last hero has dragon steel. So we've always been looking for that connection, right? Mm-hmm. So Dawn may simply be the artifact of that. A sword that basically it would have been a prototype of Valerian steel because these ancient Ashai people, the great empire of the Dawn, they taught the Valerians all of their magic. So th- this is, Dawn is like before Valerian steel. And the fact that it's white, I don't know, kind of makes me think that maybe there's a way to make magic swords without blood sacrifice. I don't know if I'm reading too much into the symbolism there, but like all the Valerian steel swords that are smoke dark 
and drink the light and stuff like they're all made with horrible blood sacrifice yeah so maybe dawn's pure or untainted but i don't know that that might be i mean too easy you know that might be but it's a good point it's a good it's a good idea to play with for sure right and so it makes for a good sword fight right you got an unbreakable black sword and unbreakable white sword um, yeah but but check this out i think that here, follow my train of thought here. So, <laughs> do you think the last hero was a Stark? Yes. Probably, right? He had a mm-hmm. dog. It's probably a wolf, right? I mm-hmm. mean, the Starks are kind of the main characters. So, okay. So, last hero is probably a Stark. Last hero had a sword of Dragonsteel. Do you think there's a chance that Dawn could be that Dragonsteel sword? I do think it's possible. It's at least possible, right? But I, I honestly think it might have been ice that he had. Well, right, but what was ice? Valerian steel. Well, no, but that's the thing. The, the Valerian steel ice that the Starks have came from Valeria 400 years ago. But we're told that the tradition of naming a sword ice is what goes back to the Age of Heroes. So there's uh, some older sword. So there's some like different swords have all been named ice. Yes. And so finish the train of thought here. If the last hero was a Stark, probably... And the last hero might have had Dawn. Dawn is a big white sword. It literally looks like a big stick of ice. Mm. So I think that Dawn is the sword that the tradition of naming ice came from. And a Stark last hero wielding Dawn, well, of course, you that's the kind of thing that would start a naming tradition. It's the sword that def- the sword of the morning that defeated the long night. So I think that is the original yeah. ice. And for some reason, they couldn't let the Starks keep it. They took it down to Starfall. So I think House Dane is like either they're stewards of the sword or maybe they brought it to begin with. Like if they're the great empire of the Dawn, a Shai descendants, they maybe brought the sword, gave it to the last hero to use, and then he brought it back. And what does Ned do with right, Dawn? I was just th- thinking about uh-huh. that. He takes right, the he brings sword it back, back to Starfall. To Starfall. Right. And I never understood why he took it back. Like, I'd have kept it. <laughs> I'm he he like took that. it back probably just for reasons of honor. You know, if he felt bad about killing Arthur Dane, whom he respected, returning the sword to House Dane is like, I mean, stealing it would have been low class. You know, it's like bringing it back is, is honorable. So, I mean, he did but just try also, to kill him with it, though. I'm very curious to see if Ned ends up finishing Arthur Dane with Dawn. I bet he did. That would be insane. I bet he did. (laughs) So did you have anything else you wanted to add about the dream before we move on? Yeah, totally. So I actually, we got sidetracked before I got to Leanna, um, but it's, it complements everything that we were just talking about. So basically just real quick, just for your audience to make sure they know what the hell we're talking about. We're, (laughs) We're kind of talking about archetypes here. When we say this person echoes last hero, this person echoes Azor Ahai. What George has done He's, he's created these mythical roles or archetypes. And so anybody that has a flaming sword, whether that's Jamie in that dream or Brienne or Beric Dondarrion or Stannis or Jon Snow in his dream of having a flaming sword atop the wall, these are all echoes of Azor High. And so we should look at all those scenes and compare them to each other. And we'll see common elements that can start to sketch a picture about either who the original Azor High was or who the, the new Azor High, what he's supposed to do. And yeah. so it's, go ahead. I was going to say that he doesn't just do that with the Azor High and the Flaming Swords. Like he does that with Correct. multiple characters, multiple parallels, even right. in Nissa, from Nissa the history. Yeah. And this and this is a good one with, and, and with Danny and Drogo, but go ahead. <laughs> Were you, and uh, Tyrion is a lot like, uh, Land the clever. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. And um, um who was I gonna say? Uh Daenerys is a lot like her ancestors. Like Daenerys's fights in Slaver's Bay is a direct echo of the Valyrian conquest of Slaver's Bay. Like when Valyria was early early on, when like Valyria was birthed. Before it's a beautiful Jews. inverted parallel, isn't it? Because originally Valeria came to the Slaver's Bay and enslaved the people, and Danny's coming to kill the slave masters and yep. try to liberate the people. 
So it's it's a very poetic parallel bookend. Yes, I agree. One in the show, like I know we hate the show, but in the show when that harpy fell off the top of that pyramid, I don't know if you remember it, and it was just and then oh, they yeah, hung the Targaryen banner up there. I was like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't hate the show. I I um look at the show very compartmentalized, scene by scene. Uh, there are some scenes that are great and others that aren't. But the main thing I value about the show is when they bring something to life from the books mm-hmm. uh, and the feeling of watching that harpy tumble. Yeah, that was great. That, that was, was that awesome. Was awesome. <laughs> I liked Danny burning the cows too. And I bet something similar will happen. Maybe not oh, exactly yeah. the same, but something similar is coming, I bet. We, we have that little clip from her in the House of the Undying where she starts seeing the visions coming faster and faster and she sees crones kneel down. Mm-hmm. Be- um, like she sees all those women kneel down, coming out of the bound. lake. Yeah. Yep, she sees that. So <laughs> I feel it's going to be something very similar to that. Yeah, she's been upending the uh, Dothraki social order from the beginning, and I think that will culminate by her becoming Khaleesi. Uh, you know, the stallion it mounts, and I think also she'll take the crones out of Vase Dothrak. They'll no longer be confined to Vase Dothrak. I think she'll take them with her. Mm-hmm. as advisors and in fact i think um i think that uh when when um quinn and i were talking with our winds of winter preview we discussed the idea that maybe the crones of the dosh Kaleen are the people that danny can leave in marine to help keep uh, the peace when she leaves they could be part of a ruling council oh that would be interesting wouldn't it oh but anyways so liana the archetype that she plays into is knight's queen and mm-hmm. Night's Queen's description gives us several key symbols. Her skin is as pale as ice, she, or pale as the moon and cold as ice, rather. And she has the blue star eyes. And she, she's found north of the wall. And she's beautiful. And she's actually called the Corpse Queen. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so it, one of the things that's confusing about Night's Queen is how can a Corpse Queen be beautiful? Um, but the thing is that she might just be the queen of corpses, meaning that she might not be a corpse. She might be raising corpses. And doesn't that actually make more sense? That makes a lot if more she's, sense. Right. So now she's a beautiful otherish sorceress. Think Melisandre. I was about to say Melisandre. Yeah, Melisandre. Because exactly. Melisandre, think- like if you were, like a, a comparison would be like if you were to call Melisandre like the shadow queen because she mm-hmm. casts shadows. So yes. if you think like Melisandre, but make it where all Melisandre is so fire, make it ice. And then there is that, that commission that George had done specifically for him. Yep. And it was like a Melisandre, but all blue and icy looking. Yeah. I think that was, uh, I think George was giving something away there actually wanting us to think about that. Cause just think about um, what Melisandre is. She is, gradually transforming herself through the use of fire magic into a being who subsists on fire magic. And the proof of that is in her chapter when she talks about her servant reminds her to eat. She's like, Oh yeah, I got to eat. So people don't think I'm weird basically. Mm -hmm. And then she talks about, she only needs to sleep like an hour a night, but soon she hopes that she won't have to sleep at all. So you can see that this is a transformation Mm -hmm. and And she keeps going. She might turn into a fire other. Sorry, that's what I was trying to say. Go ahead. Oh, that's fine. No. She says that she's lived for years beyond count. So to me, I already think she's extended her life for an unnaturally amount of time. Sure. I I do not think that she, I, I think Melisandre is probably like 400 years old. Like, I'm not even kidding. I think she's ancient. Like, I know the show did that whole thing where she's wearing a glamour, but I'm not even talking about that. Just about her saying, like, she doesn't need to eat, she doesn't need to sleep, and her saying that she's studied her art for years beyond count. I'm like, okay, well, you can count to 100, bitch. So, yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> I, it's a similar when the, when the children of the forest say, the others killed cold hands long ago. I think mm-hmm. that's like way long ago. Not <laughs> not like 20 years ago, but like hundreds of years ago. You probably. don't think it's Benjen? <laughs> no, we know it's we know it's not. Yeah, we know it's not Benjen. George has said it's not Benjen. Um so Night's Queen. Night's Queen, right. 
her symbols are pale as the moon, blue, cold. Uh, she's like an, a queen other north of the wall. And then um, uh, Knight's King chases her, catches her, loves her, gives her his seed and soul. And then they sacrifice to the others. So that is an exact parallel to Melisandre and Stannis. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stannis and Melisandre. Um, Stannis gives his life fires to Melisandre. She makes black shadows. Well, the others are called white shadows. Hmm. So if Night's King is giving his seed and soul to Night's Queen and their children are being, quote, sacrificed to the others, that means their children are being turned into others. So now we have, Mel- we have Night's Queen giving birth to white shadows, taking the seed and soul of Night's King. So it's, it's like a magical birth process that's being, you know, happening through ice, but mm-hmm. parallels what Stannis and Melisandre are doing. And so... Now look at Lyanna and Rhaegar. Rhaegar is your Night's King figure. He dresses all in black. He abducts Lyanna, chases her and catches her and loves her, just like Night's Queen does to Night's, or Night's King does to Night's Queen. Then they go into a tower, um, and there is Lyanna up in the tower, um, and her pale blue roses are out into the sky. So you've got, the, of course, the wintry, icy symbolism. She's up in the sky like a moon. She's um, in a bed of blood, which is a moon blood, even though I know moon blood is period blood and this is childbirth blood. The, the bleeding uh, woman, the childbirth uh, bed of blood symbol has to do with the whole idea of the moon exploding into bleeding stars. That's why the series Blood Moon had, if you heard the rumors about the Blood Moon show, they were going to have a long night catastrophe event involving the moon where the moon turned the color of blood at the same time as a Stark maiden was being deflowered on her wedding night. So there was some sort of magical sex thing. What did you just say about the, the moon turned red and did you say it shattered? Well, if we're talking about whatever you exactly just said reminded me of Rhaegar's rubies on the trident. Like Robert caving in his breastplate and his rubies flying everywhere. Absolutely. You just said, I don't know what you just said exactly, but it was like the moon turned red and shattered. Well, so just for your listeners who may not know, if, if, if any, so let's back up a second to make this, make sure this makes sense for everybody. The idea that we're talking about here is that the long night was created by basically a magical meteor shower it came from some sort of moon disaster because in there's two different myths that we get in a game of thrones that talk about the moon cracking in the azor high myth when he stabs nissa nissa to temper lightbringer her scream cracks the moon and then separately danny's told the origin of dragons comes from the moon wandering too close to the sun and cracking from the heat and the dragons poured forth thing is mankind has been describing meteors and comets as dragons and fiery swords for the history of time all around the world. It's a very easy idea to see. Lots of people have had this idea. And so when you hear about a moon that cracks and dragons come pouring out, well, that's really, those are pieces of broken moon. Those are meteors falling to earth. Mm -hmm. And so essentially the meteors are symbolized as either bleeding stars or dragons or fiery swords. So when you, so when you have, um, even in universe. Rhaegar's ru- rubies are, they are, they're red jewels. So they look like stars, but they're, they're falling out like blood. So they're mm-hmm. like bloody jewel stars that are falling from this smashed object into the water. Uh, when, when, when Robert smashes in with his hammer. So that's, that's why the language is similar around Rhaegar's rubies falling into the, uh, into the Ruby Ford there, you know, versus any other scene where you're going to have a bleeding moon and bleeding stars. Yeah, and, and if, okay. That's, so, that's really what came to mind was Rhaegar's rubies. When you said and that. you'll see, and you'll see that. Um, okay. So remember how we were talking about the eyes of the others at the tower of joy, because the, the blue rose petals are like the eyes of death and the eyes of death are the eyes of the others. Well, the eyes of the others are like blue stars. Mm-hmm. 
So you could see those blue rose petals in the sky as a bunch of stars in the sky. And it says they're in a blood red sky. So it's like a bleeding sky with star eyes shooting through it. And then up in the tower is the icy moon maiden giving birth and dying in a bed of blood. So it's, it's a very much, a, you know, a mythical astronomy, a bunch of uh, long night disaster symbolism. And then down below, again, you've got Ned is the last hero. His companions are gray wraiths, just like the Night's Watchmen dress in black and they're like black shadows. Um, and they're going against these white armored Kingsguard and they're guarding, a, you know, a symbolic Night's Queen and, uh, an, and they've got an icy sword. And then the last hero comes and he kills the others and he takes their icy sword and he takes the Night's Queen's baby and, and, he, and he hightails it out of there. So it's, it's pretty cool. There's a lot, a lot of stuff going on. So <laughs> it's like almost too much to talk about. <laughs> it's all not only foil for Jon Snow, but it's foil for the end game, basically, of what yes. could possibly go down, which and is I very think interesting. It really is. So you're never going to get the whole truth from one scene like this. But if you compare this scene to Jamie's dream, you know, John's dream of having Lightbringer on top of the wall, Bail the some bard. of Barrack's scenes... Uh, yeah, right. Exactly. You put them all together and you start sketching out a picture. Yeah. Of at least possibilities, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> so that's the dream. And now we're going into the politics of it all. So when Ned wakes up, Robert wants to see him. And Ned's like, the fuck? I just, my leg is broken. I can't come to you like if he wants to see me he needs to come to me um and robert ends up coming to him robert ends up coming to ned in the tower of the hand they're in the tower of the hand right i think so i think so i'm pretty sure um so ned is kind of like pissed off about it like because he kind of just wants to sleep. And I feel like ever since Ned's gotten King's Landing, he's just been taken through the ringer. Like as soon as he arrived at King's Landing, he had been riding all that time. And then he went straight oh, yeah. to a council meeting and like borrowed. Oh, they're clothes. giving him a hard time about, about smelling bad. Like, oh, surely you want to take a shower, my lord. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. He, he borrowed clothes showing up. Just he's just it's like I smell been, like a Northman boy. Haven't you ever smelled a good manly Northman before? He's just been behind <laughs> the eight ball since he started. He's just and and this is another like this is a moment of weakness. Like he's fucked up in bed, and here comes Robert, and not only Robert, but Cersei as well. So Robert wants Ned to still be his hand, but Ned is like. What about Jamie Lannister? Like, Jamie killed my men. He killed my men. And Robert does nothing. And and this is why, to me, Robert is an awful king. Yeah, it's, yeah, good example of it, yeah. He's an awful king. Like, I don't care how much money you owe Tywin Lannister. I don't care. Like, you need to do something. He's and he does. He does nothing. He's a coward. He, he avoids making decisions. He avoids standing up to Cersei, you know, for various things. Yeah, he's, he's very cowardly. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, oh, well, I had a couple of things to say based on what you just said, if you want to pause. Um, oh, go ahead. I, I, yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think this dream is, it's interesting how it's placed here as far as in Ned's chapters of A Game of Thrones because essentially George is feeding you everything that Ned and Robert are doing here in Game of Thrones is fallout from Robert's Rebellion still. And so we're getting the story of Robert's Rebellion dished out to us in drips and drabs as we're getting the story of Ned going against the Lannisters in King's Landing. And so the tragedy of the dream very much carries into that scene where it's like Ned wants to do something but he, but he kind of can't. Like, he's he's very hamstrung character, right? He's hamstrung mm -hmm. by his promises to Lyanna. He's hamstrung in what he can do in King's Landing. And Robert won't really listen to him. Um, so it's just the dream adds to the whole feeling of everything spiraling out of control for Ned. 
and his sense of just all he can really do is think about all these tragic things and wish that he could do something, but he kind of can't. And when they tell him, I think they tell him about, you know, like they gave Jory and, and the other guys that died over to the Silent Sisters. He like flashes back on the Tower of Joy that he had pulled down the Tower of Joy. I, I don't never I've never understood that part. Like, how the hell did he pull the tower down? afterwards like was it a fucking tent or something and then he was like um, well so those medieval towers are actually easier to pull down than you'd think uh if you have a couple of horses some ropes and things like that you pull down the right stones um it it could definitely be done uh and i think there's a common misconception um that there's only these 10 people here at the scene or like the the 10 fighters and Leanna, but there's no doubt serving men and squires and grooms. Those are the kind of people that don't make it into the dream. Like they don't make the cut. They're not important enough to be in the dream, but I do think there would have been other people there, you know, the normal kinds of people that accompany high Lords when they go gallivanting around the countryside. Do you think the tower was pulled down to hide the evidence of childbirth? Um, I suspect that, that there could be, there could be, yeah, they're hiding something. It definitely could be something like that. Um, but it, it also could have been an emotional thing because Ned is kind of emotional. He's got that little, little bit of rage once in a while that pops up. And, uh, you know, I could, I could see just pulling it down as a, just in disgust with the whole thing, like the senselessness of having to fight the Kingsguard and the tragedy of it all. But, yeah, Again. there's there's definitely some big thing that none of us have guessed yet about the Tower of Joy, in my opinion. I mm-hmm. think there's something that nobody quite gets that when we that we can't guess that George is just going to reveal to us and it's just going to change our whole conception. Well, back to what you were saying about um, how George does exposition, basically, where he tells uh, we're in the current story, but we're also getting snippets from Robert's Rebellion. I love the way he does exposition mm-hmm. and this dream, like even in the POV, even in Ned's POV, like Ned is like, I don't think it omens well that I should have this dream right now after so many years. And it, it is a bad omen for Ned yeah, because from here on out, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse for him. And of course, he comes when he uh, when Robert is lying on his deathbed, and Ned crosses the moat into the Red Keep. He sees the Kingsguard. Uh, he sees three Kingsguard on the way, and he thinks about ah, uh, three knights in white cloaks. So he's like, man, this is bad. Like, so it's it's used as a device to underscore the again the tragedy and the sort of helplessness, mm-hmm. and that's that's what happens to Ned. Like, he ends up in the black cells. And he really is kind of helpless and he tries to play along and then gets beheaded anyway. Um, You know, the thing about Ned though, is that he set an example to his kids and his kids are going to end up being the heroes of the story. And of course I include John because Ned raised John. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's always going to be his real father. Mm -hmm. And so Ned's virtue, even though Ned has many weak spots, the, the good spots of Ned, namely his virtue and his ethics and morals those are, those are going to be some of the things that come through in the form of his kids. And that, that'll be Ned's redemption, I think. Yeah. I mean, that, like, I, when Ned first died, I was devastated. <laughs> Ned first oh. died, I was oh. devastated. But it's like, oh. Ned yeah. has to die so that John, Arya, Sansa, Bran can turn into who they're supposed to be. And Rickon. Sorry, I forgot you, Rickon. And right, and that's why Rhaegar's not alive, and that's why Arthur Dane's not alive, is yes. because they don't have room in the story for those people. Like Daenerys, Rhaegar would trip all over Daenerys if he was alive. That's why that doesn't work, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, there can I say one thing going back to the symbolism before I forget? Because you you wanted to tie this back to Jon Snow, and there is a specific link that I that I sort of neglected to point out. So, at the tower, I just said... The last hero might have been a Stark, and he might have had Dawn. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, John is obviously, you know, going to be a new last hero figure. And then at the scene of his birth, there's Dawn. So, like, 
if John ends up wielding Dawn, it would really be, it would make a ton of sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, It would be an echo of the last hero, Stark, wielding Dawn. And it would be sort of foreshadowed at his birth. Uh, And you'd all of a sudden, as soon as a Stark holds Dawn, I swear to God, everyone's going to realize that it's ice. Mm -hmm. Um, When you see the bones of the others, when one of them melts after Sam stabs it, the bones are described as pale as milk glass. Same description as Dawn. If Dawn is the bones of the others. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, it's right. That's the joke that I always make. I'm like, yeah, Dawn's the shin bone of another. No, it's not, but it looks the same. And George wants us to think of, the, of one when we see the other. Dawn is alive with light. The other's ice swords are alive with moonlight. Mm-hmm. So very similar. Oh, and um, just to make things even more confusing, uh, Jamie and Brienne's flaming swords they're not red and orange. They're described as silvery blue. Yeah, silvery blue. Which is like, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> it's that if Dawn I, catches on fire, it could be silvery blue. I could see that, you know? Yeah, I definitely think Jamie's Weirwood dream is probably my favorite dream in the entire series. Like besides yeah. besides Daenerys's dragon dreams. I mm-hmm. love that weirwood dream. And I've always been, I've always thought that Jamie and Brienne would fight the others and Jamie would die fighting the others. I do think that they will end up uh, fighting the others. And Brienne has a ton of parallel symbolism with Jon Snow as well. Um, as like somebody who has a lot of blue icy symbolism, but fights against the others. It's a certain archetype. And uh Actually, Jamie, Jamie has it too now because he's his hair is turning silver and he's wearing the winter garments of the Kingsguard, which are even snowier in description than the regular clothes. So he's turning into this snowy white sword character. It's, it's pretty interesting. I, I think Jamie's symbolism is going to be awesome in the next book. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, act- I'm actually going to talk about Jamie's symbolism in a couple weeks on my channel. So make sure you're subscribed to the Lucifer Mains Lightbringer YouTube channel. <laughs> I've been doing character studies every Sunday. I, I go like a little bit after your streams, in fact, on Sunday. I go at uh, 4.20 Eastern. I pause oh, my did? streams until after the playoffs and all of that stuff. Because a lot of people <laughs> were messaging me like, you're streaming during football hours. I was like, oh, sorry. <laughs> okay, I'll pause them until after playoffs. And well, your, then- your Ravens are, Ravens got a tough game this week. We won't bore everybody with football talk, but yeah, ravens Bills is going to be a good one. I hope we but, win. But I've been doing character studies on Sundays at 420 Eastern. And I just did... Robert going to do Renly next, then Cersei, then Jamie. Um, but, but going back to that dream. Yeah. So not only does Jamie and Brienne have flaming swords and they're fighting people that kind of sound like the others, the whole thing starts with Jamie resting his head on a weirwood and then having a weirwood dream. So if this is a parallel to the last hero, again, it's implied that the last hero figure could be having weirwood dreams or entering a weirwood realm or you know what I mean? Something. Yeah, like that, I mean, right? I'm sure. I'm sure there's something that led him to go on this quest, just like with Bran. Right. Like he, exactly. I'm sure he just didn't just venture out on my own. Like, let's see what happens out here. Like <laughs> he had some kind of guidance. I'm sure. Yeah, maybe the first three-eyed crow, or just some children green seers. Yeah, giving mm-hmm. him dreams and telling him. Yeah, absolutely. So, um. The chapter wraps up with Jamie, I mean, Jamie, with Ned, Robert, and Cersei's like having an uncomfortable conversation. Cersei basically like, what right do you have to lay your hands on my blood? Who do you think you are? And um, Robert, oh, Robert hits her. Right there, Robert hits he? her. And it's kind of like, I don't know. It's never okay to hit a woman, even Cersei. <laughs> And I personally feel sorry for Cersei because she is in such an unhappy marriage and she has no say about it. Yeah. So it does give a little gray, like she's being abused by her husband. So it does add some gray area to her character, even though Cersei is definitely mostly evil Uh, as much as we like her. (laughs) Yeah. No, she's, she's a stylish, stylish sociopath. However, she is also a sympathetic character Mm -hmm. when you consider um, 
her, her Tywin, the pressure that comes from Tywin, the bad parenting, uh, the patriarchy of Westeros. Um, and she's manifest, um, you know, she's, it's like she can easily compare herself to Jamie because it's like we were born at the same time. Only difference is gender. And look at the different life options that we have. Yes. So it's really, it's very obvious in her case. Then on her wedding night, Robert's drunk, calls her Leanna. Mm-hmm. What the fuck, right? I mean, yes. that's... it's pretty fucked up then then he proceeds to basically not try to make the marriage work with her but instead just become you know drunk all the time and sort of blot out what's going on so both robert and and cersei were forced into their positions they were both in love with people that died in the war robert actually killed rhaegar who was the one cersei was in love with Mm -hmm. so it's it's a very tragic and doomed marriage from the start with those two and if you didn't no, if you didn't already figure out how bad of a king Robert is, his hand leg is broken. He was just assaulted by Robert's brother-in-law, Jamie. Jamie killed his guards. Tyrion has been kidnapped. The political tension is at an all-time high. And Robert says, you know what? Piss on all this. I'm going hunting. I'm going hunting. Yeah, totally. I'm going hunting. <laughs> like, if so you didn't know that he was a bad king, you now know he's a bad king. Ned gives Robert the hand of the king badge back and basically, like, forbids Ned to leave King's Landing. And Ned asks, you know, about Daenerys. Like, I don't want you to kill Daenerys. Like, that is both mm-hmm. beneath you. Basically, Robert's like, you know what? Whatever. I'm gone. And Robert is like, if you resign again, I'll give that damn badge to Jamie Lannister. And he walks out. Do you think at this time that George had ideas of making Jamie Lannister still had the Jamie Lannister King idea in mind? I don't think so. I think it works well as is as um as a sort of boogeyman the same way that uh sir ellen payne is used as a boogeyman in all of sansa's chapters mm-hmm. first couple of books and it's just sort of uh, i think it just serves that narrative purpose um and it's kind of also robert's sort of chaotic kind of idea of justice of just using you know pitting people against each other a little bit you know, yeah. it's kind of lazy. It's kind of a lazy thing to do mm-hmm. um, sort of because he doesn't really want to make the whole point of bringing Ned to King's Landing was that the Lannisters had too much power and he needed somebody he could trust. Yeah. So it's 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 might be an empty threat, but it's just kind of a way of bullying Ned in the end. Mm-hmm. I think that's the bottom line. Yeah, that makes and, sense. And, and Robert is essentially it's ex. OK, so you said always bad to hit women, of course, extra bad here because Robert is above the law. Mm-hmm. He's literally has a divine power bestowed upon him where no one can question him. We saw that when Ares would abuse and rape Rayella and the Kingsguard would stand outside and be like, well, it's not your job to protect her from him. And that's Gerald Hightower talking to Jamie Lannister because mm-hmm. Jamie wanted to do something about it. Well, aren't we supposed to protect the queen? He's like, well, not from the king. So when you have that kind of responsibility and that sort of power, it's even worse for you to resort to physical force against somebody that can't strike back. Even if, even if that wasn't a, a, a woman, like yeah. if Robert hits somebody, like they can't hit it back. So it's like, not really fair. And, and they tried <laughs> to tell him that Barristan and Ned, when he wanted to enter the melee totally. at the turning of the hand and just in defense of Robert a little bit here, not, that he hit her because that's inexcusable, but he even knows that he's wrong. See, Robert is a very sad, tragic character as well um, Mm. because he never wanted to be king and he hasn't enjoyed being king. And his whole time being king, he's ran away from every responsibility that he's had because it's not anything that he wanted. Yeah. We talked about that a lot on our King Robert stream last week. Um, 
how, you know, we compared it to the Blackfire Rebellion, where people call it the Blackfire Rebellion and name it after Damon Blackfire. But Damon Blackfire was a pawn and all the political forces that set up that rebellion were already in play because mm-hmm. whole kingdoms don't go to war because one guy had his girlfriend stolen. That's a fucking, that's a story you put on the top of it so that people can sort of make sense of it. Right. Like the, the Roberts Rebellion was brewing for years. Shout out Stefan Sasse and the South Run Ambitions Theory. Because Ares was a bad king. And when there's a bad king for an extended period of time, eventually people are going to start organizing to try to create an alternative route. And so you have these marriage alliances between the great houses. And then the whole Robert, uh, you know, Rhaegar and Leanna thing happens. Then Brandon comes storming into King's Landing, probably mm-hmm. because he's been fed misinformation by Peter Baelish mm-hmm. about Leanna being abducted. And it's not until after that that um, Brandon and and uh, Rickard are tortured and killed in King's Landing. That finally, you know, they de- uh, Ares demands Robert and Ned from John Aaron, and then Robert rises in rebellion as as the lead the figurehead of the rebellion. But it, it wasn't his rebellion by any means. He was right. like nineteen. He was just a kid with a hammer. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he had no uh, he had no idea what it what he was getting into by winning this war and he says it like some of the saddest parts of his chapter is like how he talks about he never felt more alive when he was winning the throne and he never mm-hmm. felt more dead when he was sitting on it so yeah, he's a that's like, it right there george does a good job of making all of these characters sympathetic in some aspect except for mm-hmm. like joffrey the mountain like there well, are no, some actually, characters. Jo- no, Joffrey is sympathetic because he's a kid he's and he was raised by <laughs> Cersei, Cersei and Robert. Robert is abusive and alcohol. If he hits Cersei, he probably hits Joffrey or threatens to. And Joffrey he- deserves to be. Joffrey's problem is he didn't get his ass whooped when he was a yeah. kid. That's his problem. Well, and if he ever did, it was like Robert getting drunk and beating him as opposed to like getting an actual spanking that he deserved for doing something don't they disrespectful have whipping, or whatever. They have whipping boys, right? Like yeah, royalty. They do. And Joffrey like, wouldn't so, have gave a fuck about his whipping boy getting, he would have enjoyed that because he was sadistic. So, so we just reread this last week. We reread the scene where Sansa and Joffrey are at the feast where Robert gets drunk and yells at Cersei about fighting in the melee. And mm-hmm. there's this really chilling moment where it switches. It's all through Sansa's POV. And Joffrey has this PTSD reaction. When Robert starts yelling at Cersei, Joffrey's face goes slack. And Sansa's like a queer look passed across his face. And then he starts mumbling about, uh, let me get somebody to take you back uh, to your chambers uh, a time to go. And he was just doing the sort of gallant Joffrey thing right before that. Mm-hmm. So like, this is a 13 year old kid who watches his dad, you know, get drunk and yell and scream and occasionally rough up his mom. And if you've, if you've ever watched that kind of thing, anybody listening, you know, a lot of people have obviously been through all kinds of messed up domestic disputes and divorce and stuff like that. And if you've had a brush with any of that, you understand how that can scar a kid. Well, I mean, um, he, so do- he that's does the angle for Joffrey. Yeah. <laughs> but- and George does go through things to make sure we know that people that are these fucked up evil figures have been through shit. Like even with Ramsey, didn't Roose Bolton like kill his mom or some shit? Roose Bolton killed... <laughs> Ramsey's dad and raped his mom next to the tree where the dad was hanging. Yeah. In a noose. Yeah. So that's then how told her, up. then told her never to come to the castle and basically discreetly sent her money. Yeah. So that's, so that's everybody story. that's fucked up has a reason to be fucked up. Right. Because and that's a game of thrones. Usually, right. They don't come from nowhere and they're more scary. If, the, if you understand why they're all fucked up. Yeah, if you George understand does a really why they're broken. Job. He does a really good job of humanizing these characters and not making them so bad boy, bad, bad girl, bad. So that I, is at our 10. Did you have anything you wanted to add? Oh, well, just, just keep this to what you, add to what you were saying. I think that um, there's a lot of broken people in A Song of Ice and Fire. And 
Some of them do end up as the villains, but a major theme of the story is going to be healing. There's going to be a lot of healing for some of these broken people by the end of the story. I think that's ultimately what George is writing about. So I just wanted to add that. Well, I think that's a good point. Thank you for coming on. I enjoyed having you on. Let the people know where they can find you. And I'll also put your links in the description box, but just let them know where they can find you one more time. Uh, I, oh, oh I, I will, but I, <laughs> I will. But I just remembered another uh, Knight's Queen Leanna parallel. Okay, so Knight's Queen is the queen of corpses, right? Well, where is Le- <laughs> where's Leanna's statue now? In the crypts of Winterfell. Right. And she's the, and she, if she was, uh, she might've technically been queen for a hot minute, depending on when everybody died and got married and stuff. So at least she's a symbolic Rhaegar's queen, if nothing else. And there she is in the crypt. So she's queen of the Stark dead. That's very good. Knight's queen parallel. So there you go. And you can find all of that kind of analysis and more at luciferminslightbringer.com, luciferminslightbringer YouTube channel. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much how you find all my stuff. Everywhere. <laughs> Instagram and Twitter. Yep. All right. All right, guys. Thank you. I will. Oh, Thank no you for problem. Me on. No problem. Yeah. It was a pleasure. All right, guys. I will see you guys next week. Bye.